You are now listening to Strands of Our Nation, Conversations with Dr. K, produced by the Carson Institute, which aims to provide a conversational space to discuss, debate, and explore answers to America's most urgent questions on racial, economic, and social injustice. Welcome to the Colloquium event, where we're talking about critical race theory versus culturally responsive teaching, what the right gets wrong. This has become a very divided issue. Uh, we're now looking at the changing of history curricula all over the country from K-12. It's not just situated in high school. It's not just situated in college. They're going down even to the elementary school level. And we thought it was important to take a moment to talk about what it is and what it isn't. It's critical race theory versus culturally responsive teaching because we're going to lay out both sides of the argument. Joining us to talk about culturally responsive teaching is Dr. Alicia Moore. She's an associate professor of education at Southwest University. She has over 22 years of experience in higher ed and research experience. She's also on the board of directors for the Texas chapter of the National Association of Multicultural Education. Dr. Moore, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Great to be here. Absolutely excited to have you. And picking up the weight for critical race theory, which is the hot button issue, is Dr. Walter Greeson, an associate professor of world history, American history, and economic history at Monmouth University in New Jersey. He has two books out, uh, one in particular, Suburban Erasure, How the Suburbs Ended the Civil Rights Movement in New Jersey, and then The Path to Freedom, Black Families in New Jersey. Most recently, he has been working on professional development workshops for organizations creating anti-racism initiatives, including my favorite, the creation of the Wakanda syllabus. Dr. Greeson, how are you, sir? Joy to see you, Dr. K. Thank you for having me here. So why don't we just start at the beginning? Because I think this is where people get very confused. You have folks in Alabama, Arkansas, Mississippi saying, I don't want my seven-year-old learning about critical race theory. I want that to stop as if critical race theory is taught to seven-year-olds. Can you talk about what critical race theory is, Dr. Greeson? Very briefly, I'm going to start with the kind of counter phrase that Derek Bell invented and Kimberly Crenshaw expanded on to address what I call Confederate race theory, is that the idea that we could ignore racism, that it's not a fundamental feature of the society, that uh, Black people are largely delirious or misguided, that generally we, we don't need to acknowledge Black history, or we, as uh, Newt Gingrich called it, we can see Black history as propaganda. That's what Derek Bell is fighting against. It's what Kimberly Crenshaw is fighting against and extending into the idea of intersectionality, which is a lot of what they hope to attack by condemning CRT. But at the heart of it is that race is socially constructed, that it's not biological, that it is an ordinary and pervasive feature of American society, and that ultimately we need to study it and do research on it so that we can dismantle the barriers that create inequities across American society. And so those are the pieces that were established for the last 50 years as critical race theory, but it's all in the context of dismantling ongoing white supremacy, whether in education or in commerce, um, real estate, 
banking. There are all these different parts of the society that we never stop to really ask questions about how racism functioned institutionally to maintain segregation and how that derived from the systems of enslavement. That's what CRT helps us to do, and particularly about teaching seven-year-olds. Of course, we're not teaching law school theory and political science in elementary school. However, for students of color, Black and Indigenous students especially, they learn these lessons about where they belong and who's going to treat them fairly by the time that they're two and three years old. And even white students are also learning that they can actually treat students differently based on their appearance or their hair texture, their skin color. And so those lessons are being taught uh, from households in classrooms, but they're not being taught in a way to dismantle the ways that people mistreat each other and historically have excluded each other. So that's CRT, is that it's not the formal idea. Folks who are very scared of it don't want to see what they think is normal challenged. It's interesting because Dr. Moore, when people talk about critical race theory today, I make the argument with that what you're really talking about is culturally responsive teaching. You just don't understand it. So can you lay out for us exactly what is culturally responsive teaching that prior to 2021, that was always the CRT that we talked about? Uh, yes, and it definitely was the CRT that we talked about. But what's happened today is that um, the right, I'll say, um, without trying to be political, has basically said that um, culturally responsive teaching and social justice and diversity are all euphemisms for critical race theory. And one of the things that I thought, and I found this particularly interesting when you talked about the fact that we don't need to teach that in our schools, in our elementary schools, in our, in our public schools, um, I think that that's really important because if they are in fact saying that critical race theory and culturally responsive teaching are um, equal, so to speak, then that brings about a whole different conversation. Um, one of the things about culturally responsive teaching, and Geneva Gay says this very eloquently, she says that culturally responsive teaching gives meaning to diversity without hierarchy. And so her thought about culturally responsive teaching is really just using the cultural references or reference of the students and being able to build upon them as strengths. It's also about looking at curriculum as reform and reforming it and teaching history and true history. And what has been said is that when you peel off those layers and you can see history for what it is, steeped in all of its uh, racist rhetoric and, and that we see coming forth now, steeped in all the fabric of racism and systemic uh, oppression and power and privilege, it's basically saying that culturally responsive teaching is in fact telling our students that they are given, given preference based upon their skin color and that it is to the self uh, or white abasement. I'll say. So, um, and I wanted to read, and I'm going to, to be quiet, you know me, Dr. K. Um, there was something that was said basically at when you're talking about culturally responsive teaching, responsive teaching as it relates to critical race theory, you're talking about the killing of whites and the fact that whites should bow down to blacks. And so we've taken culturally responsive teaching, something that was pure, something was about, that was about taking students 
from where they are to where they need to be, specifically students of color, and teaching their teachers and teacher preparation programs how to do that. Now, there's all of this propaganda and rhetoric about how what we're doing is teaching them to be un-American and teaching them to want to kill others who are of different races, which is really, really disheartening. Now, Dr. Greeson, what gets me, um, and thank you so much, Dr. Moore, what gets me around this CRT versus CRT is that at the heart of both of these, it's about the erasure of anyone who is not white. Whiteness has been, that, that's the invisible that we're looking to make visible. That's the norm. So when we talk about critical race theory, we're saying, oh, I want to remove Dr. King from the curriculum, which we know Texas and Florida, they're talking about, let's remove Dr. King from the curriculum rather than let's talk about how black history is American history. And I think beyond the terms and what they mean, it's really at the heart of what is happening around this country. Like it's hard not to do political when it's actually a political attack on not just education, but on where black people and brown people and women and indigenous people fit in the American history narrative. So can you talk about how do we push back against this? Yeah, this is one of the most important things we can talk about as educators is that we live in an era of massive disinformation and people love to summarize it as, as fake news and try to say, oh, liberals are lying or conservatives are lying. Well, in general, everyone I know, especially folks who have grown up and come of age in the last 20, 25 years, they struggle to discern truth and look at evidence and kind of scratch the surface and then find out what's reliable, what's trustworthy from the people who distribute and produce information. And this is an extraordinary case of that. This is a very um, sophisticated attempt to take a rather esoteric topic, conflate it with a number of strong educational practices, and then attack the entire ball of wax to return to essentially a Jim Crow system of knowledge, authority, and education. And so what you're talking about in terms of whiteness, I remember at the beginning of my career some 30 years ago, you couldn't even raise the idea of white identity in a conversation about education. It was always a deficit model of talking about um, Black students, Indigenous students, um, students of, of Latin, Latino heritage, that are saying they have to learn to become normal and perform like white students. And there were certain deficit models just about women generally, about how they had needed to learn to be competitive in subjects like the boys. And I remember in the mid 90s, it was in the era of kind of multicultural research language that this became this topic of, well, why aren't we talking about white identity? And I remember having conversations about white advantage before there was any discussion of quote unquote white privilege. And so that process of moving us to the place where people who self-identify as white have to critically evaluate how they came to see themselves in this way and what are the origins of it. There have been decades of research on it now and folks who are uncomfortable with it are rejecting it and saying, I don't want to ask any of those questions. I just want everyone to say the things that I was taught to say. And I want us to go back to a world where there was no complexity and that there, there's no ability to meet a student where they are in Dr. Moore's words and help them achieve. It's just a cookie cutter rote model 
of education. And, and we cannot. It just makes us less competitive. It actually sabotages the capacity of our students and our teachers to succeed. But then who gets erased, Dr. Moore, that when you go back to this world, I mean, this is really at the heart of, you know, I want to take America back, back to where it was a time when I wasn't uncomfortable as a white person, as a man, where I didn't have to challenge anything. Who gets lost when we go back to a world that's, quote, not as complex in its thinkings or its discussions around race and invisibility? Interesting question. Um, everyone who is considered different gets erased. And so even if we broaden it from race, people who have disabilities get erased. Um, people who are uh, in some ways from a subgroup in some form or fashion get erased. But specifically, as we, we talk about race itself, anyone who is considered outside of uh, white passing, white identity gets erased. And, and I could have other conversations about many ways in which students um, take on the mantle of not wanting, specifically students of color, of not wanting to be um, seen in as a student of color because of all of the stigma that comes with it. But basically everyone's marginalized who does not fit in that white is right type of uh, diagram. But that comes into that point that, that Kimberly Crenshaw raises. And if folks, if you're not familiar with Kimberly Crenshaw's work, please go check out the African-American Policy Forum and see her work around intersectionality and her work around hashtag say her name, remembering, you know, black and brown girls and women who've been killed and who were unarmed and killed by the police. But, but Kimberly Crenshaw, Dr. Greeson, talks about intersectionality, talks about that point where you stand. And she has a wonderful way of saying, you know, if you stand in the corner and you're black and the bus is coming on and it's only hitting black people at the corner of race, then you get hit. So you move from the corner called race to the corner called gender. And if you are a woman, the bus is only hitting women. So now I've been hit twice. And if you move from that corner into the corner called class, and it's then hitting everyone who makes under a certain amount of money, the rest of us, then now I've been hit three times. And I can't separate any of those pieces from who I am. So I have to stand in that center and say, this is how I see the world. We privilege in this country, and I say we, all of us, privilege, white, men, educated, a middle to upper middle class, you know, native English speakers who are heterosexual, who are Christian, like we have this, this invisible circle of people who get privileged, and that's what they're trying to go back to, Dr. Grayson. Yeah, one of the great lessons I get to teach often in, in early Ameri North American history is the laws of the 17th century in the 1650s, 1660s that conflated four terms. Four terms were absolutely synonymous in the law. Free, white, Christian, and male. Yeah. Those four words meant that you were a citizen, that you were capable of self-government, of making responsible decisions about dispossessing indigenous people, about indenturing lower income Europeans, about how do you enslave various groups of ethnic Africans and attempt to forge them into so-called black people. That authority is still entrenched. I heard a great stat yesterday that Christian white men 
make up 25% of the population in the United States, but control 85% of the levers of authority, whether in the government or the private sector, and are angry that that number is down from 30 years ago when it was 95%. And so this notion of who, not as rendered invisible, but who is hyper-visible, and everyone else must adjust and get out of their way and make sure that they're always comfortable and happy with the way that they operate. And I've seen this up front within the school systems, the public school systems, where we see leadership, principals and superintendents, overwhelmingly white men, very affluent, over the age of 45. And that structure is inherited. It's developed over the course of more than a century. And so bringing Black women to the fore, I believe, is is one of the ways that we start to destabilize this. And we've seen this conversation around Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka and like, what is fair to ask Black women to carry? But in this moment, when we have a chance to destabilize traditions of authority and dominance, um, the higher Black women rise, the more likely that we all become free. Well, that's something we can get back from the Combahee River Collective, right? They said, you know, nobody's free till Black women are free. Yes. I get that. But, but Dr. Moore, you know, my, my pushback is that Black women are suffering, not just, you know, having mental suffering that takes place. And I, I am thinking here of Simone Biles, who talked about, you know, having to carry the weight of the entire world on her shoulders. And the idea that she has always done gymnastics for herself. And now it's been taken away from her, like she's doing it to please people. And when she wants to step away and say it's too much, then she's being attacked, not just by the media, but I've seen a lot of attacks by black men saying, oh, you gotta be strong, you gotta push through. I think about Naomi Osaka taking that break and how she was attacked. And then I think about Simone Manuel, we don't talk about her a lot, but she's the first black woman to get an Olympic gold medal in swimming. But she said recently, she said every time she sits down for an interview, because she has all these medals, she's like the most decorated swim swimmer as a black woman, she said every time it's, hey, you are all about inclusion, diversity, and equity. Can you talk about why this important? And she said they never ask anybody who's white, anybody who's Asian American, who's anybody who's Hispanic American, they only ask that from me. As a Black woman, why do I have to carry the weight to give the answer for everyone? How does culturally responsive teaching help us to avoid getting into that box where Black women got to carry it so everybody can be free? That question is uh, a question that really um, is something that goes through my mind at all times. Um, At the university in which I teach, I very seldom teach any young women of color. Um, They are um, historically and persistently white at at this university. Um, So what does that mean for teaching young teachers about what that means to not have to carry that? I wish I had the opportunity and even a lens into the lives of the young African-American women on our campus. So for culturally responsive teaching itself, I'll go back into the classroom. In the classroom, one of the things that culturally responsive teaching does, especially as Geneva Gay um, defines it, is it's supposed to take the opportunity for teachers and for students to affirm the identity of themselves. And so teachers affirm their own identities and understand their value, but also understand ways in which they impact students. 
and then students understand their identity and their value. The problem comes in that we do not teach our young girls specifically or our young boys specifically who they are in other systems of being within our class. And so what gets lost is I am the person who is different in many of our classrooms. I'm treated differently. I feel differently, but nobody's teaching me what that means in the context of what's happening in society. And we all know that what happens in society trickles down into schools. So we talk about trickle down economics. Let's talk about trickle down racism and trickle down uh, marginalization and criminalization. And so Conversations need to be had with young girls about what that means. And sometimes that starts outside of the classroom. So it may start in um, religious setting. It may start within the home. But I think we need to have a, a greater push to what that means to not have to feel like you're carrying the weight of your family, the weight of the world, the weight of society on your back. And so that that doesn't necessarily happen. And culturally responsive teaching will be a great place to start, but it's got to be embraced. And now we know that it's under attack. And so rather than disrupting those structures, um, I guess they're being fortified based upon what's being said. So then how do we fight it, Dr. Greeson? Because I'm just- <laughs> Dr. Greeson is I'm like, yeah, hand up. Go ahead, sir. How do we fight it? <laughs> so no, this is, this is something I, I've, had to work on for a long time, but um, paying attention and documenting kind of invisible systems of how white privilege was constructed. I think back to early in my career working with principals and teachers in classrooms who would always bring the smartest, best looking, most athletic white children to the front of the classroom for intense interaction and interpersonal connection. And then black women, black girls, black men, indigenous people were pushed to the back of the room and the edge of the room and neglected and left to kind of languish and fall behind. Flip that. Can we imagine a classroom where the typically white teacher or principal is focusing on the students who are historically marginalized, who are empowering black girls to reimagine themselves and get the most intense instruction. And not exclusively, but alongside white and Latin Latino students, students from every ethnic background, that everyone is getting this kind of intense interpersonal investment. And, and that is the hardest lesson for me as I go through do, doing PD, is the importance of breaking down the unconscious habit of favoring students who remind us of ourselves. And especially for white teachers who just say, they remind me of me when I was that age. And then they'll do the extra mile and open the extra door and then years later look at, oh, they've done so well because so many people did something extra for them along the way. And we need to do this not to demand more of Black girls and Black women, but to provide more and to invest more because these are the people who have given so much to our society and have done so much with so little that if we do a little more to give them breathing space and rest and time to grow and additional investment, my God, we might actually come close to these aspirations we hold up all the time in our civics classes. So that's the kind of thing that I, I work on a lot is getting teachers from different backgrounds to invest in the students that they might otherwise overlook and to connect them to the resources that they automatically give to students that they share something in common with. Um, breaking those barriers and opening up doors for them to get 
the massive amount of resources that are out there. My number one thing is getting local schools to partner with banks so that they're giving talented young people seed money at age 10, age 12, age 15, to grow their own businesses before they graduate high school. It's literally transforming these folks' lives to rebuild multiple streams of income for their families. And the students are hungry for it. And it's not an expensive proposition to do it. But I can only push the message so far. It's forums like this, that when people can go forward and take it on, put their own twist on it, that's what inspires me the most. Dr. K, can I add something? I know you were, you were going to, to move on. Let me add something um, to kind of, I don't like to say piggyback, so horseback on what Dr. Christian said. Um, when we think about self-fulfilling prophecies and we think about the low expectations that teachers have for students, and, and uh, you said that they are pushed toward the back. They're, they're pushed toward the back, but they're also pushed basically out of the classroom metaphorically and pushed into the cracks. And so it's really, really important for teacher preparation programs to continue to push and think about and train teachers about social justice and about culturally responsive teaching and what that even means for them as teachers who are not of color. And a, a really, really quick story is that a colleague always talks about is that there were a group of young people that were taken to a teacher and they said, we need you to work with them. And there was something on the list of students that made this teacher think that they were gifted and talented. And so afterwards, um, they had to take a test and, you know, uh, they did really, really score really, really well. And people came back to her and said, I cannot believe the work that you had done with these students. And she said, oh, that's really easy when they're gifted and talented. And they told her, these are our bubble children. These are the children who are at risk of not passing um, standardized tests. And so it, it all goes to really having those high expectations, having teachers who are going to take an interest in students and culturally responsive teaching does that if it's embraced, if it's taught. And these teachers can't teach what they don't know. And I think that's actually a very good point to think about critical race theory because culturally responsive teaching does exactly what you just said, Dr. Moore. But critical race theory is telling us that even when you pay attention to students, unless you pay attention through the lens of equity and diversity, then you focus on Black students because you are assuming that they are acting up, that they're not going to survive, that they're not doing a good job. We get concerned when white teachers pay too much attention to black boys because then they wanna have them removed from the space because they are disrupting rather than being, you know, completely involved in the lesson. So unless we have the shaping of the lens through how we see children, we're never going to see them as gifted and talented. Even if we focus our attention on them, it's always going to be from the lens of deficit Exactly. rather than difference. And I think that's where people can understand why critical race theory, even though it's taught, you know, I learned it in college because I went to the HBCU and had professors who were intent on teaching as critical race. And we didn't even call it critical race theory at the time. It was just Derek Bell's work, Faces at the Bottom of the Well. That's what we did. We're like, you got to talk about Derek Bell because we have Kwame Touré coming up on the weekend asking us about it, right? So I can't teach that to a seventh grade class, but I taught it to my son when he was in seventh grade. We took a look at Brown v. Board and we talked about the way the race was codified into the law. And even if the law changes, that doesn't change the hearts and minds of people, 
which is where I argue that the battleground is. And so I know we don't have much time left and I want to open up for questions, but let's get into that, what I call the final frontier, Dr. Grierson, that the policies are there, the practices are there, the laws are there, but it's not changing on the ground. It's the hearts and minds. And even if we give seed money to black children, if we don't have the support of the community around them and not just the black community, but the community as a whole, then it's always gonna be difficult and challenging. So can you talk a little bit about how we can attack that final frontier? Yeah, so I, I love Ibram Kennedy's work, and I've been very blessed to work with him for the last several years as he's done Stamped and then now the How to Be an Anti-Racist work. But back when I was first breaking through doing this, the biography that I still use the most is uh, Tim Wise's um, you know, had had it wasn't how did I become white? But it was essentially the evolution of his white identity, mm-hmm. and that book gives a blueprint of how white people often grow up and never think about race, and then ultimately can deep program themselves. Because one of the best moments in there is he talks about um, doing anti-apartheid work, sitting up on the stage and being challenged by a black woman in the audience. And she says to him, so why haven't you done anything about segregation in Louisiana? In here in New Orleans? And he's like, um, uh, 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 I guess I pick my battles. And it's really easy to fight that battle 2,000, 3,000 miles away. Doesn't really get at where you live. And he had to really sit back and correct himself and be like, no, I need to do this struggle in my backyard first before I start talking about any other problem in any other part of the world. And so that lesson for white educators, for white people generally, to become aware of the centrality of race, to take Derrick Bell's core principles seriously. They don't have to get into how you read race into the three-fifths compromise, although that's pretty basic. <laughs> you know, you don't have to go and look at all the ways different kinds of the 1881 Interstate Commerce Act reinforces white privilege. You can do it. You can come down that road, but that's extraordinarily advanced. You can do the basic work. I'm just looking at, well, why do I live in a suburb and then two towns over, it's all poor people, black people, and immigrants? How did that happen? Like there's real basic lessons you can take just by understanding the principle. And then you start to understand why some schools, all the elementary school kids are on, um, what is it, not free lunch? Getting together. Oh, I bet you were talking about potatoes. Oh, no, they're sitting together in the cafeteria. That's that's within the, the predominantly white school. But like even this thing where we have elementary schools where kids have free and reduced lunch. And why does that happen? Why is that concentrated in certain places? Like that's intent. There was purpose behind that design, but almost no one thinks about it or puts it together. And so those are the kinds of things when we start to dig into Tim Wise's work beyond the more academic things that someone like Kendi does, or even the things that um, Robin D'Angelo does with white fragility, that, that gets us into the internal work white people need to do to connect with people who are different and give up the deficit mentality. It is what really Dr. K is talking about. How do we actually get these predominantly white leaders and teachers to let go of their poisonous assumptions that are literally killing our children. Now, I want to invite you, those of you who are are watching, uh, to put your questions in the chat, and we will actually put them out to our panelists. Dr. Moore, I want to come back to you, because I think that COVID-19 
exposed a lot. Um, and of course, my heart, uh, my thoughts and my prayers go out to all the families who have empty chairs in their household right now. But in terms of looking at education, it exposed the inequities in education. I mean, what did it mean that in a city like Baltimore, for example, where we had private schools who were open and had young people in the school in September? Why? Because they spent the money to buy all the HVACs and what they need in the special system to you know, be able to track the students. While African-American students in predominantly Black schools were home, many of them without computers. Most of them were with pencil and paper early on. And we're watching as African-American students from economically challenged communities have fallen behind this year. So what do you think we can do to begin to level that playing field when we were already behind and COVID-19 has only pushed us much farther behind? <sighs> so <laughs> in some ways, the age old question, because we know that it was on shaky ground in the first place. Um, so what can we do? That's a multifaceted answer. Um, but one of the things that comes to mind first and foremost is that we have to do something when in schools to get the actual, uh, not just the local education agencies, but actually the state education agencies, and of course our federal government, to understand the inequities. Um, and when I say inequity now, I cringe because the right has determined that equality and equity, of course, and we know that they are two different concepts, but that um, inequity is basically, again, pandering to uh, Black Lives Matter and, you know, racist assumptions as it as they lay on the other side of the fence, as they would call it. Um, but again, back to your question, it really has a lot to do with what we're going to do in schools and how funds are uh, basically given to schools, how they're delegated, what's funded, what's not funded, who's funded, who's not funded. Um, when I think about that, I wonder why in specific school districts, when you have students at home with no uh, computers, why? Because in some other school districts, they actually had a checkout system where you could go to the school and check out um, the technology that you needed. And then, of course, you know, some students don't have, um, didn't have internet. So what did that look like? There were opportunities for them to work with cable companies and others. Uh, but many times, even that information is not disseminated to our communities of color. So there are a lot of things that need to be done. Again, it's, it's multivariate. Uh, multifaceted, um, multi-complicated. But the bottom line is we do have to start somewhere and figuring out where that is, is going to be different for each individual school and school district and state. Now, Dr. Greaser, we have a question from Liz. Um, so suggestions from, from you for dealing with privileged parents re resisting critical responsive teaching, educators resisting how to get the administration to be more supportive and not performative. Uh, Liz is very specific in her question. Uh, so I'll pass that to you, Dr. Greason. Yeah, Liz Ramos is one of these folks that could be up on this panel. She's got her <laughs> own toolbox and then does this work every day. Liz, shout out your little work. I see you online every day. It's amazing. Thank you for being here with us. Um, I'd also did remember the name of Tim Wise's biography. It's uh, White Like Me. Yes. It's a pun on the uh, Black Like Me book of the 1960s. <laughs> so you definitely want to pick that up. But this is the crisis moment uh, question, is that we see teachers 
trying to avoid. You're seeing people get fired. You're seeing people being disciplined for engaging any of these points. And so how do you actually engage with parents, engage with supervisors, engage with school boards about the the critical nature of what we do. And so for me, I I spent most of my career, 30 years teaching in very hostile environments, whether it was K-12 or in higher ed. And the lesson I got was speak their language. It's very much like what we talk about with culturally responsive teaching. I had to kind of understand and learn the vocabulary of, of the Christian, white, traditionally masculine, um, straight, heterosexual man who was an authority and use his terms, use his language to help him move towards Kimberly Crenshaw and help him see like, this is something that you need if you're going to continue to be, you know, in the role of leadership and responsibility. And so my, my presentation for these folks, you know, like I said, there was a moment where we said multiculturalism was the radical intervention with Dr. <laughs> King's holiday was, my God, this is this is subversive black nationalist advocacy. Um, and we've moved a long way from there where people now accept that we need to be celebrating Dr. King and that multiculturalism isn't enough, that we need to move towards something that is actually opening the door to, to culturally responsive teaching and beyond. A lot of folks on, on the front edge for me as Vanguard are talking about radical imagination and how do we incorporate student voice, student choice to shape how we build our curricula, how we build our units and our lesson plans. And so those are the kinds of strategies that I find, even in conservative contexts, that when you show them that you're centered on the students and and the power of, of the local families, and you can kind of flip the script that someone who's got an ideological bent to silence discussion, um, it can be very easy to show that they're actually hurting the school, they're hurting the children rather than helping. And, and their own language ultimately can indict them and move the majority of the folks in the school community to, to embrace the kinds of principles we're discussing, even if they've been um, introduced to language that they're uncomfortable with. And then our last question will come from Reverend Scott Adams, who's here at Loyola University, Maryland, uh, to you, Dr. Moore. So the inequities in education are a manifestation of the intent behind the design of the system. Why are we investing time and resources fighting to change a system designed to do what it does instead of investing in structures that have the capacity and agency to teach CRT and CRT? Uh, he says, for example, the Black church, what he calls communiversities. What do you think about turning our attention to those spaces rather than fighting in a space that every time we, we move forward, there's always what they call in the paper, you know, this white lash to push us back. And then when we go back, we're actually losing ground every time we do. I, I think that's a great question. And, and I alluded to that a little bit earlier, talking about and looking at religious spaces. But I, I definitely think that is really important, but we can't give up our space. Um, you know, we talked about reclaiming our time. We need to continue to reclaim our space. And we have to reclaim it because many times it's the rug is pulled out from under us. But we have to continue to claim our space within those other structures. Because without that happening, then it, it, it ceases to exist. And it's one of those things like you're standing in line and you move out of line and you lose your space somewhere. We've come too far and made too many games that are now being, uh, they're seeking to disrupt these games, but we've made too many games to just let that go. But the expansion into religious settings, into 
households into other uh, means of making sure that we have spaces that intend to help our help our, help our young children survive. And in some ways, I, I talk to my students now not about just critically uh, critical race theory or cultural responsive teaching, but actually critically. Uh, ways in which we try to survive. And so it's more now, not it just about teaching, but for our young people, it's about survival. And so we need to um, look at the ways that it's manifested in all of these different um, settings. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Alicia Moore, Associate Professor of Education at Southwestern University, also on the Board of Directors for the Texas Chapter of the National Association of Multicultural Education. Thank you so much for joining us. And Dr. Walter Greeson, who you can find online all the time at, at World Professor, is an associate professor of world history, American history, and economic history. He is doing some moving around as per his Facebook and Twitter page, but his book is The Path to Freedom, Black Families in New Jersey. Take a look online at his anti-racism initiatives, particularly the Wakanda syllabus. As always, Dr. Greeson, thank you so much for joining us. And folks, continue to support us at the Carson Institute for Race, Peace, and Social Justice. We will be hosting monthly conversations, delving into these topics. We call it American History 101. Let's just start at the beginning. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Strands of Our Nation, Conversations with Dr. K. Thank you for listening. And until next time, remember... Words are a powerful medium that effectively examine critical moments in American history. So use yours wisely. Thank you.